Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. Good to be with you all again. I haven't had a chance to say Happy New Year to you, so uh, Happy New Year across our campuses and partners and folks online. Uh, glad to be with you all today. Uh, several years ago, a popular breakfast cereal came out with a new advertising campaign. Kellogg's Corn Flakes. Taste them again for the very first time. Now, the idea was simple. Corn Flakes had been around for a long time. The basic breakfast cereal. Pretty much everybody had tried that, maybe eaten them for a while, but pretty much everybody had moved on to newer, sweeter, sexier brands of breakfast cereal. And a whole new generation had come up that perhaps had never even given them a chance. And so the pitch was to try them again, as if for the very first time, to put away your previous experiences or popular thinking and allow yourself to be surprised by the wholesome goodness, the nutty sweetness, the simple crunchiness of good old Kellogg's cornflakes. And it turned out to be a pretty effective campaign, and, and that, uh, that line, taste them again for the very first time, was named one of the most effective taglines in marketing history. Well, there's a similar dynamic at work when it comes to Jesus. Most people especially in the Western world, are familiar with Jesus. We know the stories of his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. Pretty much everybody knows some of his teachings, do unto others as you would have done unto you, turn the other cheek. Pretty much everybody has had some experience with Jesus and, and come to their own conclusions about Jesus. He was a a good teacher, or a, a powerful prophet, or a social revolutionary, or a vegan hipster, or whoever. People have come to their own conclusions, some concluding that he was, in fact, the Son of God. And so some would say that Jesus is the answer to the deep longings of their hearts. Others have been disappointed, or confused, or underwhelmed. But suppose there's more to Jesus than you have experienced so far. Suppose there's evidence for Jesus that you've never really considered. Suppose he has said and did some things that you've never really heard or fully understood before. Suppose some of your previous experiences with Jesus or church or the Bible have been faulty or misleading or inadequate. The only logical response, if that would be the case, would be to take another look. To put aside your previous experiences, your disappointment, uh, disappointing encounters, maybe to put aside your hastily drawn conclusions and try them again as if for the very first time. And that really is the premise of this series, this whole year at Grace Chapel that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus. The premise of this journey is that all of us whether we would call ourselves seekers or believers or skeptics or cynics, all of us need to take a fresh look at Jesus. Because as we're going to learn today, there's always more to Jesus to be discovered. And that more is typically going to surprise us. So we began this journey back in the fall in the Old Testament. We went all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, and we found traces of Jesus in those early chapters, the very beginning of human history. Jesus was there even though his name had never been mentioned yet. 
And as we worked our way through the Old Testament all fall, we found Jesus in the history of Israel and in the Psalms and the writings of Job, even in the prophets. And we realized that all of Israel's history, all of human history for that matter, was preparing the way for Jesus' arrival. And then during Advent, we considered his arrival. We took a fresh look at it from the idea of the miraculous aspects of his arrival. And we realized what a powerful presence Jesus brought into the world and human experience. So now, as we turn our attention to the New Testament, to the Gospels in particular, we're asking ourselves if we can really believe the Jesus story. Last week, we asked if we can really believe that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. Or is he just a legend, like so many other figures in history, uh, like, like Horus, the falcon-headed god of ancient Egypt, or like Paul Bunyan, the larger-than-life hero of American folklore. Is that all Jesus is, a kind of larger-than-life character that has developed over time? Or can we really believe the gospel record? So Pastor Tim helped us understand the historical evidence and the reasonable arguments for the existence of Jesus of Nazareth, that he really did some amazing things and said some amazing things that set him apart from any other figure in history, real or imagined. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to be asking some more questions. Is Jesus really good for the world? Was Jesus really who he said he was, son of God, son of man? Does Jesus really make a difference in my everyday life? And today we're asking the question, do we really know this guy? Now, it's a legitimate question to ask. We have a hard enough time even knowing people we see every day. And Karen and I have been married for 35 years, and we're still discovering things about each other. What? You don't like burnt toast? <laughs> things like that. So if we can hardly know the people we see every day, how in the world are we supposed to know someone we have never physically seen or heard? Someone who lived 2,000 years ago, someone who spoke a different language, who, who grew and lived in a different culture. And then you add to that the fact that 2,000 years have passed, 2,000 years of research and opinion and conjecture and analysis about who Jesus was. So it's legitimate to ask, do we really know this guy? Maybe it's time to try him again, as if for the very first time. Now, the only problem with Kellogg's advertising campaign is that in the end, cornflakes are just cornflakes. And people who tried them again found out they were pretty much the way they remembered them. <laughs> Bland and soggy. I can assure you, that is not the case with Jesus. He will never cease to amaze you, to surprise you, and occasionally disturb you. So this morning, we'd like to meet a man who thought he knew Jesus, thought he had it all figured out, but then he actually met Jesus and found himself both surprised and very, very uncomfortable. I should warn you, the same thing may happen to us in the next few minutes. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning, looking at verses 17 through 22. We're going to just walk through the story a little bit with some commentary and then try to draw a lesson from it. Mark 10, beginning at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we meet this man in three of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story. And they each one tell us a little bit more about this man. Matthew tells us that he was young. Mark is going to tell us that he was wealthy. And Luke tells us that he was a ruler, probably a leader in the local synagogue. And so we have this wealthy, accomplished, religious young man who comes, comes to Jesus with a question. But he doesn't just come to Jesus with a question. The Scripture says he came running to him. He ran up to him and fell down. So he must have been pretty eager to meet Jesus. It was very uncharacteristic and very undignified for a man in that ancient culture, a distinguished man, to run out in public, let alone throw himself in the street in front of somebody. But that's what this man does. Good teacher, he calls him. So he seems to admire Jesus, and he, he shows him a great deal of respect. Remember, Jesus has no official, formal religious credentials as a rabbi, no formal training. This is a remarkable thing. And then he asks an important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to be good with God in this life and in the life to come? Now, if you had a chance to ask Jesus any question, there's probably all kinds of questions you could come up with. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why are there so many religions in the world? Why mosquitoes? You know, all kinds of things you could ask. This guy goes to the heart of the matter and asks perhaps the mother of all questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life, to live well in this life and the life to come. And we have no reason to doubt his sincerity. He's obviously a thoughtful, religious, highly regarded young man. He believes in God. He believes there's a life to come. He believes he'll, he, he'll be held accountable for how he lives this life. This is a pretty impressive young man. Look how Jesus responds to him. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Wow. That seems kind of cold, doesn't it? I thought Jesus was a nice guy. Wouldn't he want to encourage a young man coming, asking questions about eternal life? Why do you call me good, he said. No one is good except God alone. Now, I don't think this man was trying to issue a doctrinal statement. He was just trying to show a little respect. But can't Jesus take a compliment? And then he gets in the man's face. You know the commandments, and he starts listing them one by one. Why is Jesus being so hard on this guy? And this maybe is what I'm getting at when I say we're going to be surprised by Jesus. Jesus, maybe he's not always the meek, mild, gentle teacher that we've thought him to be. Maybe he wants to get in our faces sometimes. Maybe he wants to mess with our categories, especially if we're the kind of people who think we have things all together, like this young man did. Apparently, Jesus believes that, senses that this guy can take it, and so he goes right to the heart of the matter. In effect, he's asking this man, what are you saying about me? See, if you're calling me good, and everybody knows that only God is good, 
What are you saying about me and God? Are you saying that God and I are one, that we belong together? And so he's kind of challenging this man's confession of faith. And then, by listing the commandments, he's forcing this man to take what we would call a searching moral inventory. How has he measured up to the commandments? But notice something. Jesus leaves out the first four commandments. He jumps right to the second half of the Ten Commandments, to the commandments that have to do with our relationships with each other. Do not murder, no adultery, uh, those kinds of questions. He skips over the commandments that have to do with our relationship with God. But idolatry and no other gods before me, no graven images. Now, this is very intentional on Jesus' part, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. So let's keep going. Verse 20. Teacher, the man declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. So at this point, the man's face lights up. He, he's suddenly feeling pretty good about himself, about his chances. He says, that's me. I've been doing those things ever since I was a kid. And really, we have no reason to doubt his sincerity. It certainly seems as though he was a, a good man. Jesus doesn't even challenge him. Jesus doesn't say, oh, yeah? How about that last business deal you were working on? Or how about the way you looked at that woman when you came across the courtyard? No. Jesus accepts the man's confession at face value. So chances are this man had lived a pretty good and godly life. Done a better than average job of keeping the commandments. So at this point, he's feeling pretty good. He thinks it has it all figured out. He believes in God. He's kept the rules. He's been religious. He's kept the commandments. Based on what Jesus has said to this point, he's good to go. His ticket is punched. He's going to heaven. And at this point, I think we need to step aside from the story for a moment and acknowledge the fact that I think a lot of people today feel a lot like this man, like we have things pretty well figured out. The polls tell us that 70 to 80% of Americans believe in heaven, and almost all of those people believe their chances of going to heaven are pretty good at least. And if you ask the average person why they think they'll go to heaven, they're likely to say things like, well, I believe in God. I've lived a pretty good life. I've gone to church. I've been through the rituals. I'm as good as the next person. The same kinds of answers that this young man would have given. So we think we know how these things work. We know who God is. We know what he wants from us. We know how to get to heaven. But as we're going to find out, there's more to Jesus than we have reckoned with. And getting to heaven may not be the way we have thought it to be. So let's keep going. Verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, we need to understand that Mark, the writer of this gospel, is a no-nonsense kind of a writer. He would have been a terrible romance novelist. Mark just hurries from one event to the next. One event, one encounter. He likes to tell the story to get the action and then move on to the next thing. He doesn't waste a lot of ink on, on feeling and speculation. But in this brief story, he gives us two poignant moments. Two very evocative phrases. And the first one is here. Jesus looked at him 
and loved him. Now picture Jesus standing there looking at this young man kneeling in the street before him. Jesus looks into his eyes. He looks into his soul. And he sees everything that's there. All the sincerity, all the virtue, all the hypocrisy and the self-delusion. He sees it all and he loves him. He loves him. And he wants this man in his kingdom. And before we rush on, you need to understand that what was true of this man is true of you. Jesus sees you. He looks at you. He sees you right now, wherever you're sitting. He sees you. He looks into your soul. He sees everything that's there, the good stuff and the ugly stuff. He sees it all. And you know what? He loves you. He loves you. And he wants more than anything for you to get it and to be with him now and forever. That's what he wants. But, but there was a problem with this man. His heart was not right. He loved money more than he loved God. He didn't just love money. He idolized money. He worshipped money. He trusted his money. Now we begin to understand why Jesus skipped over those first four commandments, the one that have to do with our relationship with God. Jesus is making them conspicuous by their absence. He's wondering if the man's going to notice that he hasn't mentioned them. But the man just lets it go. This man had all his, his earthly relationships right. He was a pretty good guy. But he had not given his heart to God. He'd given his heart to money. And that becomes evident in the final verse. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is the second poignant moment in this story. The man's face fell and he went away sad. So picture it. This proud, eager, sincere, hardworking young man. He thinks he's got it all figured out. He thinks he's good to go. He's on his way to heaven. And suddenly he meets the real Jesus and the bottom drops out of his carefully constructed life. And instead of leaning in to Jesus' words, saying, Master, tell me more, this man decides he's going to turn and walk away. And he does so sadly. The message translates it this way. This was the last thing he expected to hear. And he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. Let's talk about this money thing for a minute because maybe we're all feeling a little uncomfortable right now. Was Jesus saying that selling your possessions and giving everything away is the only way to, to guarantee that you're going to heaven? Is that the requirement? Well, no, it, it can't be. Jesus has met many other wealthy people in the course of his ministry, and he's not made that request of them. Nicodemus, the religious leader who came to him at night, was likely a wealthy man. Jesus never brings up money in the course of that conversation. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they were probably a well-to-do family. Jesus has no problem enjoying their generous hospitality. Joseph of Arimathea, if he had given away everything he had, he would have had no tomb to lay Jesus' body in. 
Jesus meets many wealthy people. He doesn't ask every one of them to give away everything they had. He just senses that in this man's case, there's something keeping him from the more important question. And Jesus isn't asking us to give our money away. He's asking us to give him our whole heart. He's not asking us to give away all our money. He's asking us to give him our whole heart. And this man couldn't do that because he had given his heart to money. The question Jesus asks is, come, follow me. It's the same invitation he gives to everybody. He gave it to, to peasant fishermen. He gave it to crooked tax collectors. He gave it to some well-to-do women. He gave it to lepers and beggars and everybody he met. Come, follow me. But he knew as long as this man was holding on to his old life, he couldn't follow Jesus to eternal life. And the same course is true of us. He's not asking us to give away our money. He's asking us to give him his heart, to follow him with our whole hearts. And if there's something that's keeping us from doing that, some possession, some pursuit, some relationship, if it's fear or guilt or anger, some hurt or habit, anything that's keeping us from following him, he's asking us to give it up to him, to surrender it to his good and loving purposes. And this man wasn't prepared to do that. So he turned and walked away. Walked away from the one and only person who could satisfy the deep longing of his heart. No wonder he walked away sad. And Jesus let him walk. You notice that? As much as Jesus loves this man, as much as he wants him in his kingdom, as sincere as the man is, he lets the man walk away. Because as much as he loves and wants us, he will not force himself on us. He let this man walk, and he'll let us walk too. So what do we learn from this little story? Let's put it this way. No matter how long we've been seeking or following Jesus, there's always more to be discovered and more to be surrendered. No matter how long we've been seeking or following Jesus, there's always more to be discovered and more to be surrendered. Most of us are like this rich young ruler. We think we have things all figured out, who God is, what he wants, how to get to heaven. We think we're good to go. But then we find out there's more to following him than we imagined. Turns out these encounters with Jesus, it's not a it's not a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. It's an ongoing journey we make with him. There are many, many moments like this in the journey of a seeker or a follower. Uh, the week after Christmas, Karen and I uh, took a week and we went out to the Urbana Student Missions Conference that's held every three years. We joined about 20 or so of our own young adults here from Grace and another 16,000 young adults who descended on the sleepy city of St. Louis in uh, the final week of the year. And this conference is all about the, the work of God in the world and calling young people in particular to consider God's call on their lives to a life of mission. So five days of worship and teaching, morning till late at night. A particular focus of this year's Urbana was the persecuted church. And so we heard stories of, of men and women who were serving Christ and the kingdom in difficult and dangerous places all over the world. We heard, about, uh, we heard from a, a young Iranian pastor 
who's planted five churches there in Iran. She's been in jail two and three and four times. She's in danger for her life, and she's not about to quit. We heard from a young American couple, a couple of young children. They're serving in some restricted access part of the world. Every night, there's gunfire in the streets. Marauding bands of zealots are attacking Westerners and Christians in particular. They've thought long and hard about leaving, but they've decided to stay. And so as we heard these stories, and speaker after speaker challenging us to make a radical commitment to following Christ, suddenly I felt as though I was encountering Christ for the very first time. Now keep in mind, like this guy in the story, I've been following Jesus my whole life since I was a boy, and I was a good boy. <laughs> Kept all the rules, went to church, did what I was supposed to do, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. As a young man, I committed my life, my whole life, to serving Christ and his church. And I, I suppose I made some sacrifices to do that, I don't know, but I wouldn't have it any other way. But suddenly, I was hearing from Jesus again, asking if I was prepared to make this kind of a commitment. Does he have my whole heart? Am I prepared to risk my comfort, my security, my career, my whatever, my, my life? Am I prepared to commit that and put it entirely in God's hands, to follow him into whatever he might lead me to? Does Jesus have my whole heart, or am I holding something back? You see what I mean? No matter how long we've been following Christ, there's always more to be discovered and uncovered, more to be let go of and more to be taken hold of. Following Christ is not a one-and-done kind of thing. You don't get your ticket punched and then forget about it. It's a series of encounters with Christ and his call on our lives. Now, three years ago, it happens, at the last Urbana, there was a young woman from Grace Chapel attending, along with about, again, a group of young adults from, from Grace Chapel. Now, Liz had actually told the Lord she'd be a missionary when she was a child. And so as she went off to the Urbana Conference, she was interested in hearing what God was doing around the world. But truth be told, at that point, her plans for her life and work were pretty well figured out. She was finishing up her doctoral degree in clinical psychology and preparing to practice and teach psychology in western Massachusetts where her family lived and where there's a real need for mental health services. She enjoyed the conference those first four days or so, but on the final night, when the call was made for people to stand, and commit their lives to cross-cultural mission, suddenly Liz felt as though the Lord was speaking directly to her, asking her to take this step, even though she had no idea what it actually meant, even though she had things pretty well figured out at that point. And as she tells the story, she could not stay in her seat. She just stood up and said yes. Yes to God's radical call on her life. And she surrendered her, her training, her education, her dreams, her passion, her skill to God and to whatever purposes he had for it. That was three years ago. And in just a few minutes, at the end of this service, we're going to commission Liz for service in a restricted access part of the world. She's going to be offering her skill and training and education and her her life's work 
to serving the Lord in that part of the world. That's how it is when you seek and follow Jesus. There's always more to be discovered and uncovered, more to be let go of and more to be taken hold of. And, and this call, this response, it's not just for pastors and missionaries. It's for every person who wants to live the life they were meant to live, who wants to be the person God created you to be, who wants to spend eternity with God and his people in worlds beyond our imagining. And as this rich young ruler discovered, it's not about how sincere you are. It's not about how good you are. It's not about keeping the rules. It's not about going to church. It's not about knowing the right answers. It's about giving God your heart. It's about following Jesus one day, one step at a time, and little by little, offering your entire life and heart to him. And so everyone has that choice to, like this man, turn and walk away and hold on to whatever it is you think is going to give you meaning and joy in life. Or you can surrender that thing to God and follow Christ in whatever future he has in store for you. Before we finish up, I want you to hear from another person here at Grace, not a pastor, not a missionary, but someone who found herself hearing this radical call of Christ on her life. I want you to listen to the journey that she made and the variety of encounters and responses she's made as she's followed Christ. Would you welcome Jayanne to the platform? Good morning. I am a faithful believer in Jesus Christ and in recovery from perfectionism, self-reliance, codependency, and my name is Jayanne. Hi. Hi, Jayanne. As a child, my mom brought me to church regularly where I learned about sin and forgiveness and a loving but mysterious God. Then, at 16, while on a teen encounter weekend, there was a distinct moment when I went from hearing about God to feeling God as I opened my heart to a relationship with Christ. I experienced his love and his power, and I knew there was a purpose for my life. That was the beginning of my journey. The following year, I would lose my natural father to a heart attack, cope with my mother's divorce from my alcoholic stepfather, and suffer an assault. And through it all, the Lord and his people were there for me. I entered nursing school to begin my educational course, which would eventually take me all the way to a PhD. While raising a family with my husband and building our careers, I found myself spiritually floundering, and for a variety of reasons, our 23-year marriage ended. A few years ago, while struggling to recover from all of that, I found my way back here to Grace Chapel after having attended a woman's workshop many years prior. As we worshiped and listened to the pastor's message, I sensed Christ's presence and found a spiritual home. But there was much more work to be done. A few months later, I suffered a painful relationship betrayal, and after that Sunday service, I went for prayer and kneeled facing the cross. I felt broken and frightened and lonely 
and so confused. The door opened, and one of the pastors came to pray with me. She comforted while sharing scripture with great compassion and invited me to attend a Celebrate Recovery, or CR, meeting that Monday. However, admitting that I needed help and following through on participation was going to be very tough due to my pride and self-reliance. With decades providing trauma counseling experience for others, I was comfortable being the expert. My pride was rearing its ugly head, and it almost kept me from taking the next step. But when I read the CR pamphlet, which described helping people with hurts, habits, and hang-ups, I thought, well, gee, who doesn't have at least one of those, right? The next night at my first CR meeting, when Pastor Jim spoke on gratitude, my pride-filled heart softened and a seed of hope was planted, and it marked the beginning of my deeper faith recovery journey. With the help of CR over the past two years, I have experienced great growth personally and professionally as I continue to follow Christ while finding freedom from the pride and the shame that used to have a hold on me. I am so grateful Celebrate Recovery was there, and by God's grace, I did not walk away from that opportunity to meet Christ again and follow him to a better future. Well, thanks, Jan, for sharing your story uh, freely and honestly. If, if you'd like to hear more stories like that, tomorrow evening, Celebrates Recovery's anniversary dinner is happening, and you can come and just enjoy it. And if you're feeling like it's time for you to face an issue in your life, week one of the new CR year begins on the following Monday evening. Now, in just a moment, we're going to end our video stream for those who are watching online, but we'd like our campuses to stay with us as we can all together participate in our commissioning moment with Liz. But before we do, do that, I want to make sure we all have a moment to consider what our next step might be. What we've learned today is that following Christ is a lifelong journey of continuing encounters with Christ as we come to know him more and more and surrender one aspect of another of our lives to him. It doesn't happen all at once. It's an ongoing journey. So what might your next step be? Maybe your next step is simply to take a fresh look at Jesus, to set aside the conclusions you've come to, and for a little, little while, take another look. Stay with us in this Sunday series or join our Alpha course, something like that. Maybe your next step is to face some hurt, habit, or hang-up in your life, some particular thing, relationship, activity, habit, pursuit, that's keeping you from becoming the person you weren't meant to be. It's time for you to face that. Or maybe you're sensing God's call on your life in a larger sense to really offer God your whole life and your whole heart, whatever that might look like. If you were to encounter Jesus today the way this man did, and he were to say to you, there's just one thing you're lacking, what would that one thing be? You can hang on to that one thing and walk away and pursue life on your own. Or you can take that one thing and surrender it to Christ 
and follow him into eternal life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this vivid and remarkable story. Thank you for the way we find ourselves here. We do pray that each of us might be able to hear your particular call on our lives today. That by your spirit, we might know what one thing it is you're confronting in our lives and faith and experience. And that with your spirit's help and the encouragement of the folks around us, we might trust you with that thing. Put it in your hands that you might do with it what you will for your glory and for our good and for the, the blessing of the world. Thank you for your love for us, for your desire that we be with you now and forever, that we live life to the full now and forever. We don't want to settle for anything less than that. So meet each of us on our journey, both today and in the year to come. In Jesus' name, amen.